This is Opening Spaces, the podcast about democracy, produced by Democracy International. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Opening Spaces, the podcast about democracy. I'm David Detman. And I'm Andrew Bogrand. And today we're here with Program Officer Kelsey Allagood. Welcome, Kelsey. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. We've been talking a lot about countering violent extremism here at Democracy International, what it means, and particularly what it means in a development context. But before we kind of jump into this issue, I'd like to step back a little bit and get your thoughts on what we mean by violent extremism in particular. You know, there's a lot of, it has a lot of dimensions, it has a lot of pol- political baggage, uh, but what do we mean when we, when we use this term? Uh, yeah, Andrew, you're absolutely right. It is a, a very complicated and ill-defined term. Um, So there's no universal definition of violent extremism, which can make it difficult to talk about if we're not sure that we're all on the same page using the same terms. Right. Um, So generally, when we talk about violent extremism in the development field, we're talking about using social, ideological, political, religious, economic uh, goals to justify the use of violence in pursuit of those goals. Um, But I think that definition is somewhat incomplete for for a couple reasons. Um, First, ironically, that definition doesn't even get at one of the core components of violent extremism, which is the extremism part. Um, Extremism being defined as as holding views outside of sort of the mainstream um, of, it doesn't need to be a particular ideology, but but generally outside of the mainstream uh, accepted norms and beliefs um, that are part of being in a, a broad society. Um, so you have to think of extremism, whether it's political, religious, uh, you know, any of any of those things, um, it's holding those kind of views that are outside of the mainstream, and that's a key part of, of violent extremism. Um, but of course, that's not the only part of violent extremism. You can also have extreme pacifists. Um, and so, you know, we're not talking about extreme pacifists who don't believe in hurting bugs or, you know, that, that level of things when we're talking about violent extremism. Uh, the second reason that I think that this definition is incomplete is that we talk about uh, VE or violent extremism as this modern phenomenon that sort of picked up in the second half, generally of of the 20th century. Um, we talk about uh, you know al- your Al Qaeda's, your Al Shabaabs when we're talking about modern violent extremism. Um, but people have been using religion and ideology to justify committing violence for centuries. You know that's unfortunately not uh, an unusual thing. Um, when it comes to, to the human condition, you know, the Spanish Inquisition was a highly violent period in, in history justified by the you know, purported need to ensure the orthodoxy of, of Catholic converts. You know, that's just one example of, of many um, historical ones. So when we talk about modern violent extremism, you know, your, your Islamic State, al-Shabaab, um, we're talking about extreme methods and extreme goals. So again, extremism being outside of the, the mainstream viewpoints. Uh, the Spanish Inquisition was uh, you know, approved, even established by religious and political leaders at the time. And that's not the case generally when we're talking about violent extremism today. You know, there are always exceptions. Um, but the, when we're discussing VE, sometimes by definition, the views and goals of the individuals and groups that are committing these, kind of what we decide are violent extremist crimes, are acting outside of the mainstream. They are holding extreme views and their goals are, are also extreme. Um, and I think that, that can 
we can run into issues when we sort of paint all nation you know a certain nationality or religion with a broad brush and so we have to keep in mind that that violent extremism is not part of the mainstream it is it is outside of you know your typical muslim or you know just to use the the most popular example i think uh viewpoint so that's you know just just one of many complications that come into play when we're talking about violent extremism so kelsey you recently wrote an op-ed highlighting some of the myths surrounding violent extremism what are these myths well there are a lot of myths surrounding violent extremism um even just in the definition of it um so my article highlighted three of three of these myths that i think are are probably the most important and and most um prevalent in these discussions but obviously there there are plenty more and these kind of only scratch the surface uh, the first myth is that violent extremism is the same as radical islamic terrorism the, the two are not synonyms. I think they are used as synonyms uh, for political gain because it's easy to point to specific instances and say, look, that that truck attack in a, in a Christmas market, that's what we're fighting against. Um, but really, violent extremism is so much broader than a, a particular instance um, of violence against a Western target, um, whether or not that, you know, person who committed that crime or act of violence was a Muslim or a an extreme right-wing individual, a neo-Nazi, right. um, something like that. Um, so we really, it's, it's, violent extremism is a much more complicated issue than one particular religion um, or one particular ideology. Um, so uh, may I inter uh, interrupt you mm -hmm. on that one myth? So, you know, I think there's a, a, an impression that we're using the word CVE almost as marketing or you know, sort of as a focus group tested phrase when we're really talking about sort of radical Islamic terror. And your, your article suggests that you know, it's not a complete definition. It's both, it's both lacking in the sense that it doesn't encompass things like right-wing terror but it's also counterproductive in that it might alienate our allies. What are some of the other myths? Absolutely. So the, the second myth is that there is a root cause of violent extremism. And I think that this particular issue has been um, done to death in development circles because we keep looking for, well, what caused this? What caused this particular individual to take this action at this time? Um, and we haven't been able to come up with any solid conclusions to that. And I think that's because there, you know, there is not one single root cause of violent extremism. Um, for a while, we we were thinking that it might have to do with unemployment or underemployment. You know, young angry men don't know what to do with themselves, so they go off and join a, you know, some kind of you know violent extremist group that offers them security and uh, a sense of purpose. Right. Isn't that sort of the prevailing though development context? I mean, isn't that when I, when I see what kind of development organizations are doing, they're saying, well, we want to kind of fight against economic disenfranchisement, and by doing so, we will lessen the pool of potential recruits. And I think that that's a completely valid goal and, and strategy for approaching one part of violent extremism. Mm -hmm. we, we absolutely should. You know, we, we see that the, the countries that are most affected by violent extremist acts and the, the countries that are... Um, turning out the most foreign fighters, you know, that are going to Iraq and Syria are, they, they tend to be 
the ones struggling most with development issues, with, with good governance, with uh, adherence to the rule of law, um, with insecurity. And so there, there's certainly room for these sort of searching for what might lead a young person to go to Syria to join ISIS. Um, but but that, it, not to interrupt, but so yeah. this seems more, uh, more to David's point, this seems more about good governance or the lack of good governance as opposed to you know, the kind of economic situation. You, know, you mentioned Iraq and Syria. Uh, Libya, I think, is in the list as well as, mm -hmm. as, as top you know, recruiting areas for young extremists. This seems to be you know, a vacuum of governance, as it were. Is that kind of, I mean, there might not be any root cause, but it certainly seems that there's some, some connection between this. The, the difficult thing is that we don't know. We mm -hmm. haven't been able to quantitatively prove that bad governance or lack of economic opportunity lead people to, to join ISIS. And I, you know, I keep using ISIS as an example, but it could also mean you know, joining a neo-Nazi group in, in Germany or in the United States or s something like that. Um, and we, it, we don't know because it's very complicated. It's highly individual. It depends on a whole host of factors that we haven't been able to isolate. Um, and I think we, that to get to the main point, that's something that we need to keep in mind as development practitioners, as we're conducting uh, CVE programming, we need to keep in mind that just going after one of these factors is not going to solve the problem. So your, your first myth is that C, uh, countering or violent extremism is not the same as radical Islamic terrorism. Your second myth is uh, that there is not one root cause. What's your third myth? The third myth is that countering violent extremism is the responsibility of law enforcement and the military. Um, I think that you know the deve development community has taken a much, much more active role in recent years in trying to define violent extremism and, and counter it in kind of non-security, non-military ways. Um, but we, we can't just leave up the task of dealing with violent extremists to military or to security apparatuses. Um, because like I was saying in my, in my previous point, in the previous myth, um, it's much more complex than that. It's not just a matter of, of crime and punishment. Um, we should certainly, as the development community, work with security forces when and if at all possible. Um, but when you're, when you're talking about going after root causes or whatever you want to call it, what, what prompts uh, a person to conduct this, this sort of act, um, it's not just a, well, they need to be caught and sent to jail sort of I, issue. I, my actual question is related to that. Um, President Trump recently sort of proposed what he's framing as a hard power budget. And he's saying, you know, what we really need now is more tanks and more aircraft carriers and, you know, more or less focus all of foreign assistance on security challenges. Um, would it be fair to say that one of your points is, well, development and, and kind of finding ways to counter violent extremism is a national security issue for the United States, but it can't be solved with tanks and aircraft carriers. It, violent extremism absolutely is a national security issue for the United States, um, and it, it cannot be solved solely with tanks and bombs. Um, you know, you, you're, 
what what is the goal of that? Is it just to to kill all violent extremists? Because you know there are always going to be messenger messengers that come out with with other ideas and getting other people to to join their you know their groups, and so you can't just address those things with with hard power. If you're going to be looking at how to address violent extremism, you need to be looking at the whole picture. Um, and that can include security issues, but that should also include their economic background, their social background, the sort of um, other instances of violence that these people may be, may have interacted with, whether that's state-sanctioned violence or your domestic violence. There have been some studies that suggest that um, areas where domestic violence or state-sanctioned violence or impunity are more common tend to produce more people who join violent extremist organizations. So, you know, you're, you're not going to be, you're looking through a hard power lens, lens at something that she should be much broader and take into account the, the various complexities of geopolitics and, and social issues and governance and rule of law like we were talking about before. And that's hard. You know, that, that's not an easy thing to put in your budget and say, you know, we're going to attack violent extremism in all ways, in an all-encompassing way. That's, that it's, it's hard to package, right. uh, but I think it's critical. So what are some of the examples that are working? I mean, I, I know you mentioned that they're, you know, it's tough to kind of label a root cause, but is there, are there studies or are there, are there, are there cases that we know of, of a violent extremist or a countering violent extremist program that works, uh, that it's, that's had some effect? Or even broader, I mean, what are, where has a kind of a development intervention or a international development program succeeded in maybe lowering the threat of extremism? It's difficult, I think, to, to find development programs that have been working because traditionally there hasn't been a whole lot of, you know, funding dedicated toward CVE work. You know, that, that has changed, but we're not sure if that is going to continue to grow um, in the coming years. Um, and the, the real core issue is that it's been very difficult to track and monitor things that work and approaches that work. Um, you know, for, for example, Democracy International just began a program in Bangladesh that is funding pilot programs that will then be, these pilot programs will be monitored and evaluated very closely to determine what might be working and what might not be working to, to counter violent extremism in, in Bangladesh. And I think that that sort of approach is the right one going forward because we have so little data and, and so little information about what actually works we need to be able to, to take chances, um, you know, with, all within reason and with, you know, an eye toward, you know, our implementers and our local partner security for certain. Um, but we need to be willing to experiment and willing to fail and willing to, to be very honest with ourselves about what works somewhere may not work in another place and what works at one time in one particular place may not work the next year. Um, so we need to be able to to accept failure, uh, accept flexibility, and and make sure that we're doing our utmost as development practitioners to identify what is actually working and not just kind of what sounds the best or what we think might work based on, you know, some 
you know, half-cocked data that we might have. Um, and I think that that's the biggest challenge. Um, and then we can start talking about what works. Um, but at first, we, we, need to, we need to gather data about what we're doing to prove that it works or to prove that it doesn't work before we can move on to what's successful. It's interesting, Kelsey, that you mentioned, you know, kind of measuring what we're doing and, and what we're trying to do. It seems like the democracy, human rights and governance field, the DRG field, is uniquely positioned to, t to tackle this CVE issue, uh, you know, head on. In Afghanistan, I know that, you know, Democracy International is running a, a, a strong governance program, a, a governance reform program in Kabul and in some of the provinces, and, and part of that effort is to reform public service delivery, to improve public service delivery for citizens. And that includes reforming the identity and, and, and basically allowing returning Afghans and Afghan citizens the opportunity to have a national ID card. And that's critical for receiving you know, public goods and public services, of course, for voting and for other issues. But it's also necessary for the state to know who's coming in and out and who's, who, who might represent a threat or whatnot. And I think from that angle, the DRG sector in particular uh, might look at current programming, uh, not just from a CVE angle, but current programming outside of that and look at its CVE implications. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think DRG is very uniquely positioned to kind of take this whole of system approach to identifying causes and, and successes in the CVE field. Um, you know, it's it's critical to know what is working in in any field. You know, in in health, in medicine, in in DRG as well. And so we need to be taking that sort of that that critical lens toward I think everything that we do, not just CVE focused programs, but but you know our governance programs or or other implementers, um, political or or other rule of law. Um, or anti-corruption or transparency or, you know, all these sort of DR traditionally DRG uh, subjects, I think we need to be taking a, a critical lens and saying, well, does this relate to countering violent extremism in any way? Is there, is there a way that we can kind of track things that, that may affect an individual deciding to join a violent extremist organization while we're doing this, you know, other anti-corruption work that we were doing anyway? Um, and I think that that is one one possible way to integrate CVE into development and the sort of work that, that DI and many other organizations are doing around the world. So here's my worry, and I'm gonna editorialize for a minute. <laughs> my worry is that this entire subject of countering violent extremism is a very serious subject and literally lives are at stake. And we sort of outside the development world within the policymaking community, but also the public at large, we're kind of falling into a marketing trap and we are you know, almost reacting out of fear and not using <coughs> data, we're not using sort of the scientific method, we're not trying to figure out methods that work to counter violent extremism, we're just reacting by either branding an entire religion as dangerous or by saying, the best way to fight this is with guns and bombs, and or we if we just call it something other than countering violent extremism, we'll somehow be closer to solving the problem. And it, it worries me because it's a serious subject, and I feel like right now in particular in Washington, 
it's not getting the serious attention that is sort of required. And so I wanted to say, you know, bravo to you for writing this article and engaging in what is an emotional, almost like a knee-jerk reaction um, subject, but it's very important. Um, do you have any kind of closing words of wisdom for us? Well, I mean, th thank you for, for having me on the podcast um, and for giving me the opportunity to, to share these, these myths. I hope that it starts a broader conversation about how we in the development field deal with CVE and deal with it in this current political environment in the U.S. And uh, I know we can get, as you were saying, David, we can get kind of our blinders on when it comes to trying to, you know, get funding and, and make sure that our lights stay on, basically. Um, and we can get into this sort of politicized trap. Um, but that's sort of what I'm arguing in, in my article is that it's really important to not be, be caught in that trap of politicized, knee-jerk, kind of very high emotion um, reactions, because it, it is a very, very important subject. Um, and I hope that we can continue to, as, as DI and many, many other organizations have proved to be more than capable of being honest with ourselves in what works and what doesn't work and building better development um, off of those successes and failures and, and sharing it with the broader community. And I think by, by building up our, our data sources and our information and, and figuring out what works and what doesn't work, it'll be much easier to make the case for what we're doing or what we should not be doing to the general public. Interesting. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, Kelsey. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, for Democracy International, this has been Opening Spaces, the podcast about democracy. Views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Democracy International.